We'll be reading from Luke 18, verses 31 to 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn to Luke 18, we'll be looking at the verses we just read. Luke 18, starting in verse 31. Let's pray. Father, we always need your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And Lord, we thank you for this beautiful music that has begun to center our hearts and our minds on you and in this moment we ask that you would speak because we declare that we are listening so would you help us hear what the spirit has to say to us tonight pray this in jesus name amen in verse 34 of our text it says but they understood none of these things the disciples were thoroughly confused. Uh, they were bewildered. Uh, I imagine that they had this look on their face that was just kind of, what? And rightly so. But they could not understand what Jesus was saying, and they certainly could not understand why Jesus was saying what he was saying. And the problem is everything is going so well. It's going so good. Uh, they're moving from town to town. They're moving from village to village. And they're on their way to this triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He's already said many times that's where they're headed. He says it again in this text. In verse 31, he says, we are going up to Jerusalem. They know that this is the mission. They know that that is the destination. And everything seems to be going their way. Jesus is teaching the very words of God because he is God. Jesus is healing people. Miracles are taking place all around them. Again, everything seems to be going their way. When someone comes up and asks Jesus a question, Jesus will ask the questioner a question back and they can't seem to answer. So every argument seems to be going their way. There's this clear message of the gospel that's on display for people to see as they're on this journey. But then Jesus takes this moment and he pulls his disciples to the side. And while everything is going well, it's, it looks like, it seems like that Jesus pours ice water on a movement that is right now white hot. All the momentum is going with them. People are beginning to follow because people are beginning to believe and the followers are building. 
But Jesus pulls them to the side, the disciples, and he has this conversation because he knows what's coming. He knows the cross is coming. And he's trying to prepare them for this moment. He understands that they do not have a clear picture of what's going to take place when they finally make it to Jerusalem. And he is preparing them. And what, part of what he knows is that there are six heartbreaking and body-mutilating events that are going to take place when he arrives in Jerusalem. He lists them for us. There are six of them. But this is the mission. He's been very clear with them. They know where they're going. The crowds are starting to pick up about where they're going. People are talking about where they're going. He knows he is going to Jerusalem, but Jesus knows what is actually going to happen when they get there. The disciples, they have some ideas, and they don't match reality. And so Jesus tells them in verse 32, listen, when we get there, the Messiah, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, Jesus says, they will kill him. There's the six. He's going to be delivered over, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and eventually killed. He's going to be delivered over by many hands, not just one. And he knows this. He's going to be betrayed by several at one time. And the Roman execution that he's going to undergo is going to be set up by at least one person who knows him closely, that's Judas, and a people who at least know him casually, and that's the Jews themselves. He says he's going to be mocked. There are going to be jeering crowds who only see him as a troublemaker, whereas at once they saw him as someone bringing peace. He says he's going to be shamefully treated. He's going to be treated in a manner that is meant to crush the souls and break down the spirits of the hardest of criminals on the planet. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be spit upon by onlookers who are going to get caught up in this bloodthirsty frenzy. A crucifixion is is something very public and people would come out to see it. There's something in human brains that feed off this from time to time when it's built into your culture. He says he's going to be flogged. He's going to be flogged by soldiers who have perfected the art of flogging and they've perfected it to the point to where when they flog their victims, they do it in just the right way so as to maximize the pain with every lash. And he knows this is going to happen. And yet still, step after step, he keeps making his way toward Jerusalem. Not only is he going to Jerusalem, he's taking people with him. Now, we know these events are going to take place. The disciples are hearing them and they're trying to process all of this. But it does raise a question. And I think the question is a good question. I think the question is, who is responsible for all of this? Who's going to be responsible for delivering him over? Who's going to be responsible for mocking him? Who's going to be responsible for treating him shamefully and spitting upon him and flogging him? Who's going to be responsible 
for killing Jesus. I said different people are going to be a part of this. But what people? Who? We may say, well, the Romans? Yes. They'll be a part of it. The Jews? Yes. They too will be a part of it. Judas? Well, yes. He's going to be a part of it. The religious elite? Yes. They are going to be a part of it. God? The Father? Yes, actually. He sent his son to die. But what about you? Are you a part of it? Yes. What about me? Am I a part of it? You betcha. The text says in verse 32, For he, the Messiah, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they, we, will kill him. After going through all of this, they, we, will succeed and he will die. Now, you may say, Chris, I was not there. I had no part in that. How could I have had a part in that? How in the world could I have something to do with an event that happened almost 2,000 years ago? I love the quote that says, Unless you see yourself standing there with the shrieking crowd, full of hostility and hatred for the holy and innocent Lamb of God, you don't really understand the nature and depth of your sin or the necessity of the cross. End quote. You see, the necessity of the cross, we like to think in many ways that it is a them problem. That was a Roman problem. That was a Jewish problem. That was a Sanhedrin problem. That was a Judas problem. We like to think of it and distance ourselves from this reality of Jesus literally hanging on the cross, beaten almost beyond recognition, hanging there, nails in his hands, nails in his feet. We like to distance ourselves from that, but... The problem and the necessity of the cross is that it's not a them problem. The cross is a me problem. And it is a you problem. He hung there for me and for you. And he hung there because of me and you. We like the four don't we? We don't like the because of. It was John Stott who said, before we can begin to see the cross as something for us, we have to see it as something done by us. And boy, did we not just think about it. How deep the Father's love for us Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulder. My sin 
Not Romans' sin, not Jewish people's sin, not Judas's sin. My sin was upon his shoulders. It was my mocking voice. It's one of the most theologically accurate songs you can sing about the crucifixion. We just sang it. It was my sin that held him there. My sin. Until it was accomplished. You see, we killed him. We did. But when Jesus depicts the gruesomeness of what awaits him in Jerusalem, he uses a very interesting word to describe what's going to happen. In verse 31, at the beginning of our text, it says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be, and then he uses the word, accomplished. It will be accomplished. He could have used another word. He could have used another phrase. It's going to happen. It will come to pass. But he uses the word accomplished. And I think he uses the word intentionally. Now for the disciples, this is the worst case scenario, right? Again, remember, they are just dumbfounded at what is coming out of Jesus' mouth. They have that blank stare on their face. They're not comprehending. They're not understanding what he's saying at this particular moment. This is worst case scenario. Because if someone who claims to be the Messiah or is seen as a Messiah figure, if that Messiah figure dies, that means the movement's over. I mean, that's how that works, right? I don't know if you know this or not, but normally when you die, you don't come back. Right? But Jesus says, and he calls this, what's going to happen, even the killing part, he calls it an accomplishment. A completed work. It's a painter putting the final stroke on a masterpiece. That's what that word accomplishment means. But then that raises the question, what, what is accomplished here? I could give you 50 things at this point. I'm only going to give you a few. First is that, well, Christ, he is the Messiah. He is going to die in our place. And he's going to be, big word, the propitiation for our sins. He's going to be the atoning sacrifice for us. He's going to be the lamb, the perfect lamb who dies in our place. We say that in places like Romans 3 or 1 John 4, 10. We see that Jesus dying in our place, what he's going to accomplish is he is going to, and people don't like this today, but he's going to satisfy the wrath of God. God is so just and holy and perfect and pure, he cannot not judge sin. He has to. And Jesus is going to take all that we deserve on himself. He's going to absorb the wrath of God on his own shoulders. Again, we just sang about it. Jesus is going to go to the cross and he is going to be our redemption. He is going to pay the redemption price to purchase guilty sinners. Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's going to be our ransom. The ransom we just sung about is going to be paid to redeem us back. 
Jesus is going to go to the cross and he is going to be the one that reconciles humanity with the Father. We see that in places like Hebrews 2, 17, Romans 5, 10. Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's going to justify guilty sinners like me and like you. It's that old phrase, it's going to be, just if I'd never sinned. The slate's going to be wiped clean because he goes to the cross on our behalf. Jesus is going to go to the cross and he, in that he is going to sanctify his people and set us apart as holy. Hebrews 10.10, 10, Hebrews 2.11. He's going to go to the cross and by him going to the cross, we are going to be, as Hebrews 10.14 puts it, perfected forever. All of that. Because he's going to go to the cross in our place on our behalf. But I was thinking about this and I just kind of stopped the list. Because there's so much that Jesus accomplishes on the cross. But there's this one thing that I believe we struggle with the most. And as I listen to people talk... So I listen to people talk about their life and their faith and how all that gets lived out. There's this one thing that Jesus accomplished that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around and it is simply this. It is that Jesus going to the cross is the final sacrifice for sins. That one statement that Jesus is the final sacrifice for sins has major, major implications on our life and on our eternity. And again, we struggle with this one because we struggle to believe that Christ's finished work on the cross is actually finished in us. We struggle with that. We struggle to believe that his sacrifice actually changes my position before the Father right now. We struggle with that. And I know because I know how we think about ourselves. I know that when we're having a morally good day, we feel good. When we fumble and stumble, we feel bad. Because we lose sight of our position before the Father. We struggle because we still try to make ourselves look good before Him. Or, instead of showing off, we still make Adam and Eve's mistake and try to hide from him (laughs) as if we could. But I do think God enjoys playing cosmic hide-and-seek. It's fun. He always wins. As much as we try to hide, he always wins. But we struggle with this idea that Jesus is the final sacrifice for sins and we struggle with the implications of that. I want us to go to two places. One is Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. And then we'll go over to Hebrews 10. But Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. It says in verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true thing, right? The temple is a copy of the true temple in heaven. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, important word, 
As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, that's what the priest did. Every single year he would go back for the sacrifice, but he was sacrificing blood of an animal, not his own blood. Verse 26, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The key phrase I want you to see there is that he appeared once for all. Once for all. One sacrifice for all time. We see this repeated in Hebrews 10. Look at Hebrews 10 verse 11 and 12. It says, And the high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly, that word is repeated there, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It only covers them temporarily. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, that phrase, for all time, means that there is a decisive action, a final action that has happened, and it never needs to happen again. And to prove that, where does Jesus go after that one sacrifice has been made? Text tells us. He goes and he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you see the image? The sacrifice has been given. Now I can go sit down. It is completed. It is done. I can go take my rightful place beside the Father because this work is finished. Which means that Jesus is the final priest making the final sacrifice. No more is needed. And no more should ever be done. He can do this for three reasons. Number one, he is sinless. He is not making a sacrifice for himself. He's making a sacrifice of himself. No priest could ever do this. That's why he is the great high priest above all others. Every other priest had to make a sacrifice for their sins and the people, not Jesus. He's sinless. Number two, he's also human. And because he's human, he can carry on his shoulders human sin. And notice the images that are used. He bore our sins. He carries our sins. Notice, they're not within him coming out of him as they are us. No, but he takes them upon himself as a human for humans. He's sinless. He's a human, but he's also eternal. Him being eternal means that this sacrifice never has to take place again. Because him being divine, him being eternal means it is an eternal sacrifice. Once for all time. All time, all the way into eternity. Never has to happen again. Several years ago, I found myself in Palestine. I was in a a village called Taiba. And in Taiba, there's about 2,000 people. It's a Christian village. About 1,800 of them are Christian in the West Bank. 
and the second day we were there, second, first full day, second day we were there, we walked up and there was this church. There were the ruins of the church out there. And I walk up and the archway going in where the front door was, was still there. It was still intact. And hanging from that archway were two huge chains and on the floor, it was stone floor, was all of this congealed, blackened blood. And, and I asked one of the locals, what, what happened here? What is this? And they said, it's a mixture of Judaism and Christianity where people are really not sure 100% about Jesus' sacrifice. So once a year, they come and sacrifice a lamb just to make sure. And all I thought was, was his sacrifice not enough? Is it not enough? And you see, every time we try to do something for God, and every time we try to add something to our salvation, and every time we try to make ourselves look good before God, every time we try to contribute something to our salvation, the question is the same. Is his sacrifice not enough? We may not be sacrificing a lamb in the ruins of an old church, but we sacrifice our assurance because we simply don't trust him. You see, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, we'll get there in life along the way, but when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, it is finished, guess what he meant by that? It is finished. <laughs> he, he was not guessing. He, he didn't say it's 99% done. Now you've got to do 1%. It is finished means it is finished. The work is complete. The painter has put the final stroke on a masterpiece and it's done. The painter will now go sit down. What this means is that everything you think about your faith, that part of your faith that you think is unfinished, when everything you think that is unfinished about your faith is now complete in Him. It is complete in Him. And we have to have faith for that as well. We've been reading from Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 where Jesus gives His sacrifice once for all. You remember Hebrews 11.1? 1? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We don't see the completeness yet. But because I have this faith, I have this conviction now that it is complete in Him. I don't see it. And I want this side of eternity. But it is complete in Him now. You see, we see ourselves from the standpoint of our limitations. We see ourselves from the standpoint of our faults. We see ourselves from the standpoint of our failures. And we look at these through these at God, if you will. That's why David said, my sin is ever before me. That image is, I think, very important. It's always in front of me. And so when I'm trying to lift my eyes to God, I'm looking through all my faults, my failures, my limitations, and that's how I'm looking up to God. But when God looks at us, he doesn't see that because God is on the throne. And from the throne, he looks through Christ at us. So, which means when he looks through Christ at us, he sees a finished work. 
which means the God who sits on the throne, who exists outside of time, when he looks at you, he looks at you and sees what he will see at the end of time. So God does not just see your potential, but he sees your position before him. He sees you in all of your wholeness, in all of your completeness, in all of your healing. He sees you in that way. We try to limit God to time so many times, don't we? But when he looks at us in Christ, when he looks at us through Christ, he sees a completed work. That's why you cannot earn your salvation. You can't do it. You can't earn it. Because it's his finished work. And it's either finished or he lied. I don't know about you. I just don't think I feel comfortable calling Jesus a liar. Therefore, it is finished. And when the Father looks at you, he sees finished because he looks at you through Christ. And our job is either to refuse it or receive it. It's like the guy who several months ago, um, I, I was driving down the road and something happened and I just veered right over into the Jack's uh, driveway line and you know I was like wow it's a great time for a biscuit and 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 I'm in line I order my smoked sausage and biscuit add cheese please and um, in the car in front of me I got up and the lady said well that car driving off just paid for your biscuit I said well if I'd have known that I got two Right? I mean, come on. It's what every good preacher would say. So, at that moment, I have a decision to make. I still have a decision to make. I can refuse it. Say, I see that money in your hand, but no, that does not pay for mine. I'm going to pay for mine. And you can use that however you want to. You can give that to somebody else. I either refuse it or I receive it. I chose to receive it, by the way, just so you know. It's the same thing. When we are given this offer, this free thing that we cannot earn, we cannot get it on our own. We can say, no, I'm going to try to pay for this myself. I'm going to try to deal with my sin problem myself. I'm going to try to deal with my eternity problem myself. We can refuse it or we can receive it. The problem and the metaphor of the story breaks down because the problem is you'll never be able to pay it on your own. The bill's way too high. But he did. And that work is finished. So Lord, would you help us believe that? Would you help us walk in that? Would you help us live from a place of finished work? Lord, may we live from a place of healing and of wholeness and of holiness. And Father, would you help us not believe the lie that we're just crawling through life begging, but the work is finished. I can think of no better thing to think of as we remember the broken body and shed blood because that onto the resurrection is the finished work. Thank you, Lord, that it has been accomplished. 
that on the third day you rose King Jesus. May we walk in it. May we live it. In Jesus' name, amen.